in my mind, what I want to do to get elastic is I want to have a concentric orientation of the anterior pelvic floor. I want a concentric orientation of the posterior pelvic floor. And I want to make the anterior yield and not give up its concentric orientation. If I can do that, it's almost like creating a Super Bowl. It's like I try to make this thing yield, it won't, and then it rebounds. It's easier to see it at the ankle, okay, which okay. is why I coach almost everything at the ankle because I believe what is happening at the ankle will tell me what's happening at the posterior, at the pelvic floor Interesting. in a lot of ways. Cool. That was Dr. Pat Davidson. Welcome to another episode. So elasticity is basically a running theme of this show. We talk about a lot of things. I think a lot of times things come back to, did your training make a difference on you as an athlete? Did it help you run faster, jump higher, move better on the field, make that play, be more robust, and so on and so forth? The weight room is, has always been a passion of mine ever since I was 11 or 12 years old. But it's one of those things that it's definitely bit me. And one of the places that it's bit me is just straight up my, my elasticity, my reactive bounce off the ground. And that's happened several times throughout my athletic career. And I'm always, I'm always trying to look deeper at what, what is going on in the context of these big lifts that might be impacting being able to run and jump off one leg really high or do other athletic things with a high amount of both power and reactive strength. So I'm thrilled to have Dr. Pat Davidson back on the show. He was the guest on episodes 88 and 122, speaking on topics such as an educated approach to movement screens, as well as things like reevaluating the big lifts in light of athletic performance. He's an independent trainer, consultant, author, and lecturer in New York City. He's the author of The, the Mass and Mass 2 Systems, as well as the developer of the Rethinking the Big Patterns lecture series and an upcoming book on that same topic. So Pat is extremely intelligent and also able to explain things in a really simple manner. And he has been a force in helping me to understand the body as a pressure system and helping me to understand a little bit more about the nuances of muscles that are on concentrically or eccentrically. And I just, for me, sometimes there's a certain language that helps my brain really click and around, especially some of these more complex concepts. And Pat's style has just been so good to me with understanding the body like this. So today for the show, Pat's going to talk about, on the first half, a lot about his experience as an athlete and then a strength score system that he has come up with that kind of normalizes outputs or what we see as an output in the weight room based on leverages. The second half of the show is going to be all about just what I had mentioned, pressure systems, elasticity, squatting, deadlifting. How do these things all impact each other? How do body positions, internal and external, external rotation of joints impact these things? Uh, what can you learn about an athlete looking at their presentation? What does compression mean? What does front-to-back compression mean for an athlete? What does side-to-side uh, -side compression mean for an athlete in terms of what you're going to see out of them and their performance? These are, again, these are concepts that can be complex, but Pat really puts them in a simple manner so we can just wrap our heads more about what is happening to an athlete both short and long-term by exposing them to a particular stimulus in the weight room, for example, flat barbell bench press. What happens from a compression perspective if I do this exercise heavy enough for long enough to a particular athlete? This uh, podcast will answer those questions and so much more. Just again, really happy to have Pat on the show to explain this. So whether your goal 
as a coach or athlete is to make athletes more reactive, explosive, elastic, or just have a better understanding of the big lifts and how and where they fit into this pressure gradient system. This is the podcast you've been waiting for. I got so excited, especially on the back half of this show, just so many dots were connecting for me. And that's, again, just the reason I love talking to Pat. So let's get on to it. Episode 227 with Dr. Pat Davidson. I mean, I know you were like, you know, strong man. And then what have you kind of been up to in the last, I mean, how has your physical like fitness movement training practice evolved over the last like 10 years or so? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, it's like, I think back, like my original sport loves were, were baseball and football and more towards baseball. And when I got to college, I took baseball away from myself through inability to be mature as an 18 year old. And then I was able to at least recapture athleticism by getting into mixed martial arts a couple of years later. And that was such a cool pursuit for me because it was this introduction to like, you know, I was good at sports, didn't require like extreme fitness, you know, and I, like I liked to train as a kid, like I'd watch sports center and you'd see Canseco McGuire, like just crushing baseballs. And it was like, well, if you want to be a great baseball player, you clearly have to be jacked. So I'll, and then like after sports center, you'd have like the, the bodybuilding shows come on, on ESPN and like, okay, I'll just watch these things. And then I'll go to the gym and I'll wear gloves and do Smith machine squats. And like, that's clearly like how you get jacked. And, you know, I, I think training that way made me a hell of a lot slower, you know, just having no idea what I'm doing, copying the bodybuilding shows on ESPN and not sprinting and not playing. Like I should have played basketball in high school. I, I didn't like it because I wasn't good enough to really like start or something like that, but I should have just played basketball during the winter so that I would just remained athletic and jumped and sprinted and changed directions rather than like bodybuilding in my basement. But anyways, like I, I got into mixed martial arts and it became super cool because I could train seven days a week. You know, like it was the first time where it was like, you know, all I got to do is call up a couple other dudes and be like, hey, you want to go over at one today and we'll train and we'll train for like three hours. And be like, yeah, sure. That sounds good to me. So it was like I could train to my heart's content. I hated off days in high school, you know, like, what am I going to do with this? Like, why can't I just train all day? And then I, I also figured out like, hey, if I just manipulate food, I can get into a weight class that will really suit me where I can just physically dominate people in the 150s, you know, like I'd just be so much stronger than them and like just toss these people around. So it was really fun to find a sport where I, it was like, if you train more and you learn techniques and you improve your fitness and you get stronger, like you can immediately see the benefits. Whereas with baseball, it's like, Hey, congratulations. You trained more. You still can't throw 90. Sorry. That guy over there that just drank like eight beers last night and like was out until two in the morning. He can still throw 92. So you're never going to be as good as that dude. But, you know, I got into that and it, it fed me like that work ethic and that understanding of manipulation of training and nutrition and kind of morphing the body into a certain shape that, that allows you to be able to express the peak of athleticism in that sport. And then when I was finished with that, like kind of going into grad school and getting a PhD, I was just so grateful to be able to eat food again. As soon as I was done with, with mixed martial arts, I gained 60 pounds in six months. And uh, I was just like, yeah, I'm just going to eat food and lift weights and, um, and get jacked. 
And so I did that. And then like I finished PhD, I went and started working as a professor and like, I was still training with, with people, but I was just like getting fatter and like, didn't really have any specific goals. I switched to Springfield college. And then all of a sudden there were like a bunch of students that were competing in strongman. And they were like, Hey, you should really try this out. And so I did. And I was like, man, I could be really good at this sport. I just have to like not be such a fat ass. If I go on a diet, I think I could dominate. And so I did. And I, I, you know, I was only in the sport for three years, but I managed to go to two world championships in that time as I just brought my body weight from like 215 pounds down to 175. And as soon as I was at 175, I was like the right size and shape for that sport. Then when I was done with Springfield college, it just was way too hard to try to train strongman and like work in New York city, the whole deal. So again, I just kind of got fat again, like even like pre pre COVID I was up at 230 pounds and like kind of have training goals. It's almost like, Hey, like I'll write a book and do the book and make kind of like a community almost of people doing this, this sort of a workout. But I feel like recently, like what where, where I'm heading with, with a lot of things, like, I designed this strength score system that goes with Kaiser equipment so that it can measure, it, it measures exactly the range of motion of the, of the piece of equipment that you're using. It knows the load and it gives you a work score. So it's, it's super cool to watch this happen now because you can see like, like oftentimes like taller athletes are better at the sports that, that we all participate in. It's like, you know, look at football, look at basketball, look at baseball. It's like the athletes are taller in, in these like uh, in these sports where they're a little bit more mature. You know, it's like there's a bigger talent pool that goes into it, whereas less mature sports you see oftentimes like it, 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 I mean, look, gymnastics and other things are going to feed more towards uh, shorter athletes sometimes. But but the traditional sports that we play, it's like you're not going to see too many starters in major league baseball that are under six feet tall. And it's like, but the interesting thing is, is that oftentimes the guys that dominate on the field won't be the same people that dominate in the weight room. And it's like, maybe the, the bench players might just be shorter. Okay. And maybe they look like they're dominating in the weight room because they're not moving the implement as far. Okay. And now that I've got this strength score system going, it's like you can clearly see like, okay, I'm on this leg press and I'm using 800 pounds. And the dude I'm training with, who's six foot two, he's using 550. And we're doing 12 reps and his score is better than mine. Hmm. You know, and it's like this guy, if we were to play sports, is going to be better at sports. Than me. You know, and it's like, shit, like I think I'm seeing the reason that we think that like, because I mean, it's such an old story of like, uh, this is the gym rat. This is the guy that puts in. He's the great guy in the gym, but he just doesn't play that well in the field. Well, maybe we were just not measuring the gym very well because we were literally only measuring the load. We weren't like who measures the distance? Nobody measures mm -hmm. the distance. And it's half the equation of at least work. You know what I mean? So it's been so interesting to watch that happen. But long story short, like what I would love to make this strength score system the new kind of strength sport. You know, it's like powerlifting gets ridiculous with the sumo deadlift mm. with dudes with like super long arms and really short thoraxes. You know what I mean? Because it's like 
they're literally rack pulling and they're moving the bar like four inches. And then you got like these arch specialists that move the bar about three inches. And it's like, hey, I just bench pressed 550 pounds. And it's like, this dude looks like he can't bench press 225, but like has a competitive, is like number two in the world or something like that. And just bench like way over 500. And it's like, is this person really that strong? Or are they just like taking advantage of the weirdness of the rules of this sport? Mm-hmm. So like, and even CrossFit, like if you're too tall, you're never going to win CrossFit because there's so many reps over the course of the sport that like, you know, a taller guy is literally probably doing much, much, much more mechanical work. If you were to measure work from load times distance, I would love to see what transpires from having people compete in this load times distance test, which to me is just physiology, loaded physiology measurements. And and I want to, I personally want to drive that forward. I want to compete in it, even if I get my ass kicked. But I feel like, you know, if I can make something similar out of this, like a weight class kind of a thing, it would be super cool, but I don't want to suck at it. So I know that if I'm too fat, like that's the surefire way to be terrible at a potential weight class sport. So I've adopted much better dietary practices with this long-term view of inventing my own new strength sport and (laughs) competing in that strength sport. Do you have a name for the new strength sport? Is it, is it, uh, is it going to be like a, have you thought about that from a marketing perspective yet? Or what, what do you have any ideas? I haven't really thought about it from a marketing perspective. I mean, to me, it's just the truth. It's like, <laughs> just, that's all it just, is. It's just power, power. Just, just straight up power. Yeah. It, that's all it is. It's like, how much work are you actually doing? And if you can do more work than me per unit time, I mean, like if, if I create the confines of this thing, it is a measurement of power. And generally speaking, the athletes who create more work for unit time, I mean, who's the best marathoner in the world? Whoever it is that creates the most power over the course of 26 miles, basically. Yeah. If you look at it in those terms, yeah, for sure. I was just going to say, I, that's interesting you mentioned that because I hadn't thought about it in that perspective. I've always, I mean, I've realized it more and more every year that, and I've seen it as a strength coach, is the athletes who aren't quite as good as at their sport compared to the other athletes want, want to find a way to still be good. So a lot of times the extra mental energy gets dumped into the weight room. Like, Oh, if I just, I'm just going to try harder here. I'm going to be better here, but they're still not as good at the sport as the other. And I think it is common to say like the best players aren't at the best in the weight room, but I hadn't really thought about it from what you said. Like those people who have the levers that may not be as good for the sport will also just naturally be a little better in the weight room. And it's human nature to want to be good at that. So I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. Why it's interesting. And honestly, I don't think they're better in the weight room. They're just using more weight. They're leverage. They get the leverage. The over. Yeah, not. They're not. Yeah, defining what is better. I would um, when I would do recruiting visits at at Cal for the incoming swimmers. I, I remember I would, this was part of my spiel all the time. It's like every college, every place you go is going to have like squat maxes and bench maxes and x maxes and whatever and i i we had kaiser jumpers and i was like look the people that tend to improve more as i see improvements in the water happening they're usually these kaiser numbers these power numbers are going up the squats and all that stuff just don't seem to matter as much because a lot of times the people are just learning the leverage and the nuances of that lift and sometimes you can like you could like arch your back in a different way you could do create more rigidity in a different way but that's not going to help you as much on this just pure power and there's it's more of a raw like a just a raw pure format that uh, your power is just 
strength of human organism, whatever you want to call it. But I think, yeah, as whatever what you're working on comes out, I think it's kind of like the same thing, right? It's just pure outputs, not revolving around levers and joints yep. and angles and those things. I mean, it's just crazy. Like I've like historically through my life, it's what you're talking about where it's like, I can take solace in the fact that I'm better in the weight room than the guys that were better on the field than me at football and baseball. And now it's like, Man, did I just create the system that removes my own lie from me? I think I probably <laughs> did. I think I 100% did because now it's like literally like like I'm saying like it'll be differences in hundreds of pounds where I'll see like hey this guy is on for the same number of reps I'm using 800 pounds this dude's using 550 and this dude's score is higher than mine is in terms of the mechanical work that this individual is producing and oh my God, that makes so much sense since this person is much better than me at sports where we're outside playing. And it's like, man, that it, it's, it's just kind of crazy. I mean, it obviously needs way more testing and way mm-hmm. more nuance and things like that. But it's, it's in, like the distance component makes all the difference in the world. And the funny thing to me is like, you know, I've been saying this for years, like the deadlift versus the squat, you know, taller guys – have always complained about like, oh, well, you're great for the deadlift. I'm like, no, I'm not, man. We have the same range of motion. Like stand next to me. Our hands are the same height off the ground when we stand next to each other. Mm-hmm. I We have the same range of motion for this. Like you can bring that argument to the squat all you want because I'm moving it way less distance than you are because, look, the bar's on your back and that thing's like a foot higher than my back. So clearly you're moving it. If you get it to the same point of, of on, the, on the descent, if it's as low as mine is, and then you go all the way to the top, you're definitely doing more work and it's much, it's more demanding for you. But the deadlift, no, 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 no. So it is funny to at least see like, hey, when we deadlift, yeah, I beat you because we're doing the same weight or I'm doing way more weight and we're doing the same amount of work. But in the squat, you're crushing me, even though you've got less weight than me because it's moving so much farther. And that makes sense. It kind of teases it out. Same thing with with the upper body stuff, like, hey, yeah, I might be using a hell of a lot more weight on the bench press, but your score is higher than mine is, you know, so it's 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 very curious. But like until like people, you got to measure the right things. I, I, I'm just a big believer in that. Like you don't want to measure everything because then it's just noise. But if you can measure the right things that really elucidate insightful information, and now if you can move that measurement in the direction that you're hoping now, all of a sudden, I think that you've got all the pieces coming together. Like psychologically, people are obsessed with measure. And if I can improve it, then I know that I'm gaining the things that I want to gain. It's almost like, like I always think in my mind of to do lists and to not do lists. Like, can I identify the right things that go in the to not do list? And can I identify the things, the right things that go in the to do list? And then can I avoid changing the to not do lists in a direction and can i can i focus on moving my to-do list in a in a numerical direction if i do that i mean i'm, I'm just crushing in every possible way but the proper identification of those lists is critical and so i love what you said about like you know you go out and you do workouts and you only have two exercises now and i'm like you sound like somebody that has a great to not do list because you're avoiding a bunch of stuff that probably is wasteful and if I can do the same thing, then I'm being productive through subtraction. 
Yeah, the I'm trying to think of the Bruce. The Bruce Lee quote is um, eluding me right now. But yeah, that's that's been a big part of it all. Just kind of thinking about what are the things that really drive my athletic engine the most and just being maniacal and obsessed about making those as good as I can has been big. I like what you're saying too about even the levers and it makes me think about something as simple as sprinting. Like how does someone who's like five, six compete with someone who's has longer levers and it's just like, well, they're going to find a way to make their shins drop faster, but that's like all organic. Your brain isn't even necessarily on, but I was just thinking about, you know, it probably helps the confidence of the six, the five, six person if they could beat someone who's got those taller, longer levers. But the same way in the weight room, if it's just there's a power output, a strength score, like how much better for the confidence of that athlete perhaps too. If it's like they can feel like, you know, just because I'm six, five and have these long levers, I still feel really good moving this way because my strength score is awesome. All right, great coach. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, you know, the confidence level could be really cool for that too. Uh, it's, it's huge. You see it because it's almost like, I'll tell you, like the, the things that I've learned through using this about these weird logical fallacies of the weight room have been very interesting. Like there is almost no positive reward for doing things right in the weight room. No, because like, let's say you actually use true full range of motion. You get punished in many ways in terms of the reward system of the weight room. If you go full range of motion and do something right, then you have to use less weight. Okay, so that's a punishment. Or you have to do less reps, which is a punishment. You know, versus now, if I get you to do things in my mind, which is right, which is using as much range of motion as you can for most strength exercises. You know, it's almost like I divide like, strength exercises from elastic and athletic exercises where, and, and we, this is a great topic to get into, but you know, when I'm thinking strength exercises and muscular development, I want to use as much range of motion as I possibly can that fits in the confines of that exercise. And, you know, previous, like I was saying, like, Previously, if you actually do that, you get either less weight or less reps. But now, if you do that with this measurement, you get positively rewarded for it mm, because your score sense. goes up, you know? And it's like, hey, actually, please lower the weight because when you lowered the weight, you moved it through substantially more range of motion. Look, your score's higher because you dropped the weight. And, like, people see that and they're like, Oh, oh, that's cool. Like, so I actually, I finally positively rewarded them with something. And, and look, people feel this right away. I just had a guy yesterday, like, I, I love the Kaiser leg press. You know, I love the single leg leg press on it. And this dude just was like using total, like quarter range of motion, half range of motion. And I was like, look, like, I'm not going to count any of these reps until you hit the bumper, the back bumper. Like you got to at least one time do it for me. Cause we'll, I'll sit here all day with you until you hit that thing. And so he moves it all the way back and he, like, you can see the guy's eyes open to the side like dinner saucers and he pushes away. He's like, Oh, that's different. That's different. And uh, I'm like, yeah, man, that's like what I'm trying to accomplish here. And I was able to show him like, Hey, look, like last time your score was 6.4 for your set. This time your score was 8.5 for your set. And we went 50 pounds lighter. Okay. Like, and he was like, Oh, I totally get it. And the other thing was, metabolically he was just much more rocked he was like wow i feel like i worked harder and i'm like well you did work harder if we look at the percent difference between 6.4 and 8.5 it's an enormous difference in output 
And he's like, so in, in immediately, I didn't have to say anything else to him for the rest of the workout. Every single rep after that went full range of motion, hit the back bumper and his score went like eight, five, eight, seven, eight, nine, something like that. As he got more confident and added a tiny bit of weight each time. So I think that, uh, you know, there carrot and the stick, it, it's, it's going to come down to that. And a lot of times it's like finding the right carrot is hard in the weight room because the carrot is more weight, more reps, writing down like, oh, I did better. I made progress. Mm -hmm. People love progress. Who doesn't love progress? It's, it's one of the most rewarding things that you could possibly give to a human being. But there's so many false representations of progress. Like the way that people cheat reps to me is, is even myself, like, even if you are so bought into these concepts, you're going to want to make progress so much. You'll lie to yourself. And now it's like, I, I just almost think of this board. Like I, I, with my clients, I just call it God because I'm like, God is always watching and God is never wrong. And you can't lie to God. You can't cheat God. God's just going to simply tell you what you did. And they're starting to get it. So the consistency of their work has gone through the roof. And now we actually get to see, did you actually make progress or were you comparing apples to oranges previously? And I think that the extent to which we compare apples to oranges and trick ourselves into thinking that we got more apples is astounding. But now it's like, yeah, we, we don't even, we don't have apples or oranges. We just have this numerical feedback that will recognize with precision, if you move that thing the same distance, or if you were off a little bit. And also what we were just talking about, like this newfound confidence for athletes that are taller with longer limbs, seeing like, hey, you know, I haven't been lazy all this time. You know, I feel like my coach thought I'd been lazy, like, or somebody was kind of, you know, thought I was sandbagging it or something along those lines. I've been trying. You know, it's almost like I think of it like when you when Randy Moss was playing and people were like, ah, he's kind of a lazy route runner. It's like I think he's just is supremely athletic because he looks lazy and he's burning everybody. Mm -hmm. He's just better. And you can't see it because his body is so well organized and coordinated. And now I see it, I'm like, this guy was not sandbagging all this time when I thought he was. This dude is blowing me away in the real score. So it's I mean, it's just been amazing. But what you were talking about, like a shorter guy figuring things out, like I don't want to lose. Like I'm like, what do I have to do to keep up with these taller guys? And it's like I'll find a way to reach farther and mm -hmm. stretch more. And what do I have to add a little bit more load? Maybe I do. Like maybe the only way I can compete against these guys is to really make myself like a freak of nature in terms of how much load I can move, you know? So I think of like guys like an Austin Eckler or somebody like that in the NFL, where it's like, they're talking about like him being like maybe the strongest guy in the league pound for pound. Like he lifts with the linemen. He's just so impressive, but he's shorter. What, he's five, eight, five, nine, something like that. And I'm like, well, he probably needs to be that for mm -hmm. his size and shape in order to be able to to display things at the level that he does. So I'm just so curious about it. I love what you said earlier in our conversation about why don't we study the freaks a little bit more? Mm -hmm. You know, what is it about them that allows them to be that way? 
because I mean Austin Eckler is a freak. How do I if I'm his size and shape? How do I get to be more like him? What what is he doing that can be measured that's different? You know, he's same Bolt's got that big difference asymmetrically in stride length. Like that's probably what I want to make people that are the same size and shape him as him be more like. Why am I trying to not go towards that? So it's super cool stuff. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to talk to you about two units that Simply Faster now has out that are excellent for training data collection in measuring bar speeds, sprint metrics, limb speeds, and more. The first is the VMAX Pro. If you're interested in barbell tracking technology that is affordable for the individual athlete in the garage gym, but yet is accurate enough to be trusted by professional teams, then you might be interested in the VMAX Pro. The VMAX Pro is a tiny sensor that attaches to the barbell or even the body to help with lifting and jump training metrics. It'll give you immediate feedback for jumps, lifts, and even measure the motion of the bar in 3D. It includes a travel pouch and the associated app works on both Android and iOS devices. You can auto-regulate with precision with the VMAX Pro. The second unit is the Muscle Lab IMU. If you want to take your movement training to the next level, then the IMU is something you would definitely want to look into, as it's a pocket-sized sensor that can attach anywhere on the body and deliver research-grade motion real-time. With it, you can collect ground contact times during sprints, limb speeds for jumping and throwing, and even support return-to-play metrics. The sensor fuses with the rest of the Muscle Lab sensor system for even deeper insights. You can improve your movement data and get measurement that matters today with the Muscle Lab IMU unit. You can improve the depth of your workout metrics with these two pieces of technology. And if you're interested, you can head on over to simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. Check out their online store where you can find these pieces and improve the depth of your training metrics today. Let's get on back to the show. Yeah, I like the idea of studying the studying the freaks is something yeah, I've been super turned on to ever since um, you know, met Darian Barr. But even like you're saying, like study the freaks who are like you. Like if I'm, I'm 6'1", I'm... My legs are kind of short, but my shins are long. And, you know, like maybe can I find someone who's like me, who's awesome to really study? And and, I mean, I want to study everybody, too, you know, but like but just what makes that person so good and to get that out there. Uh, So I'd like I know, you know, training too in in typical strength conditioning, it has been going more towards, you know, thankfully towards velocity, VBT. But even then, like there's still that length of motion equation, right? Like a. Like and and so that was interesting that you were saying like trying a shorter person trying to get more range out of something to do more work. Do you think that that could translate to like movement as you see it? Like if a short person who maybe is more compression oriented perhaps and needs to, do you think that there's value in that outside of just even the weight room and power in the weight room? Yeah, I do. You know, and it's it's like I, I just want to pull apart some of the things that like maybe we've because it's it's like I don't think lifting weights is bad for anybody. You know, I don't think that, like, I can't imagine it being necessarily bad. It just maybe the approach that you take to it is is not conducive for your for your goals with your frame. And so it's like, you know, I love some of the topics that that Bill gets into with with talking about frames and adaptations and things of that nature. So I I think that if if somebody's built like me, you know, and, and I'm five, six, and when I'm just eating what I want to eat, I'm going to be over 200 pounds, even if I'm relatively lean, you know, it's just like, that's just, and, and it's like, I go home, I see other people in my family. It's like, I'll see the 
you know, the women that have never lifted weights that are 20, 30 years older than me. And it's like, they still have the same frame as me. I'm like, okay, it makes sense that I look the way that I look. And like, they're strong. Like they've never lifted weights, but like, you know, they, they own dogs. And like, I see them like effortlessly pick up these like 50 pound sacks of dog food in their seventies. And I'm like, okay. Like it's just, I just come from like a, a genetic background of like stocky Irish people that can just like throw heavy shit around. All right. That makes it's like what I'm kind of designed for. So I've probably tracked in that direction, like from a reward system perspective, like, hey, if you're good at something, probably going to do more of it. People compliment you on it. And it creates this this sort of a thing. But but my frame is much more exaggerated than theirs, you know, and and you could see this exaggeration take place with anybody that has done a significant amount of resistance training. And there are stereotypical changes morphologically that will happen to the skeleton. It's like we, we get so obsessed with looking at the morphological changes that happen to the muscles that it's almost like that's where the view of morphological change stops. And it's like, uh-uh. Like you can recognize people that have done a tremendous amount of strength training by the way that they move, by the way that they run. Like they're visually obvious. You know, it's like, watch the wrestling team go out for a job, watch (laughs) bodybuilders go out for a job. And you're going to see like this sort of like, you know, rigid style, the whole body turns together like a refrigerator with some arms stuck on it. And it's like, well, why is that happening? And is this something driven through the training style? I would say, okay, there, it's definitely something driven through the training style. And now explaining why it's happening is the hard thing, because you can, you can find other examples of people that are like, well, this person's lifted a lot of weights and they, their muscles are still really supple and they move really gracefully and beautifully. Like, wh- how come this person can do it and this person seems to mm-hmm. have taken this other adaptation of rigidity? And it's like, well, you know, at least as far as I understand Bill's model, it's hard to ever speak for Bill because, you know, I, I think that he he is someone that sees things on a level that I've never encountered before and trying to interpret what he's saying is for me, the difficult part. And oftentimes when I think I'm correct, I'll run something back by him and he's like, nah, not really. Like, uh, and he'll say something that I don't fully understand. And I try to spend months unpacking what he said. And then I eventually arrive at it, but you know, he's got these two strategies of, of expansion and compression as the only way that things move, you know, and it's like the the simple rule that it's like he, he said something to me one time that was so profound. He was like, well, if you are from the universe, then you have to abide by its laws. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, wow. Like, so to me, the laws of the universe can be explained through the trajectory of evolution in many ways. Like and with evolution, you never get to throw out old parts. You know, it's like. I remember reading uh, one of Richard Dawkins books where he was explaining how evolution works and he compared evolution to aviation science. And he was sort of saying like, okay, if if aviation worked the same way as evolution, then every new plane that Boeing was building would still have to have all the parts from the Wright brothers, original plane and every derivation of planes since the Wright brothers up to this new one, they would have to include those things somewhere in the plane. And then they can add on something new thereafter. But you can't throw anything out. So so when I think about that from what Bill was saying and putting all these things together, I'm like, well, movement goes older than biology. It's pre-biological because non-biological, inanimate things move still. 
like molecules move, atoms move, matter moves. Okay. So physics, like basic physics precedes everything. Inorganic physics precedes everything. And like I can picture movement of things from the perspective of gradients, you know, just like sodium running down its gradient, potassium going on its down its gradient, heat moving down its gradient from high to low. And when things are moving into a zone, that zone is expanding. It's like you're compressing a gradient on one side where it's high and it's driving the movement of, of matter to another area and it has to be accepted into this new area. And particularly when there's confines to it, you know, it's like I can picture a lung where it's kind of like it's been compressed to push air out and I would be expanding the ex external environment. It's just that it's such a big chamber. It's like I can't visually witness it. But in the opposite direction, when air moves down its concentration gradient into a lung, the lung has to expand three-dimensionally to accept, to yield to this incoming matter, okay? And, and that's a good lesson to apply to every other part of the body because that's like the original rule of movement. Things are either moving into something, occupying it and expanding it, or something is compressing and pushing something out of it. So, you know, we were, we were talking about turning and the way, like, if I want my body to turn to the right, let's say I'm going to throw a ball and I'm right-handed and I have to get into my windup, I'm going to compress the left side so that I push matter to the right. And then when I create the force to throw the ball, I'm going to compress the right side, which is going to turn me to the left. And there are these stereotypical joint actions based on the shape and the constraints and the design of the skeleton for a human that correspond to either the compression strategy or the expansion strategy. You know, when I'm externally rotating a femur or a humerus, that's expansion. When I'm supinating my hand or my foot, that's expansion. When I'm abducting an arm, that's expansion. It's all the same thing. It's just that we visually see it as abduction in this particular case because the skeleton is just shot in that manner. Or, you know, on the flip side, that, that compression being internal rotation, pronation, adduction, extension, pro, like, uh, you know, dorsiflexion. It's all this compression strategy that we use to squeeze things with. And ultimately, like you can become too biased towards one style versus the other, you know, like for me, like if you lift a ton of weights and you get really strong, you're just changing yourself. You're telling yourself compress, 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 compress. If I were to do nothing but like yoga, probably I would probably be telling myself this other message of expand, 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 expand. And too much of that can be problematic when you need to be able to have access to both of these strategies. And I think that that's where we, we run into problems. We, we, number one, we view one strategy as being better than the other, which not the case. They're just strategies. Mm -hmm. They're like methods of accomplishing tasks. And the more methods you have to accomplish tasks, probably the better. Yep. You know, I remember having a conversation with a dude that I trained who was like 90 years old, who had made like millions of dollars in the market. And he was like, 
let me ask you a question. What's the best thing to do with your money? And I said, I don't know. You, you tell me. He's like, do as many different things with your money as you possibly can. And I was like, oh, variability. Okay, got it. Cool. I was like, hey, you know how you've been asking me what's the best way to squat? Go back to your example of what you just told me about money and you've got your answer. And he was like, oh, <laughs> like, that's, like, I was like, gotcha. Gotcha, man. Like, um, so, so similar, you know, like, uh, how many, like, do you have options? Options are, are really critical, but inside of those options, there's still like, can you display the optimal archetype for one, for one of these strategies when it is appropriate? You know, it's like, if I biomechanically break down, like, like, I, I think like Patrick Mahomes is such a great example, like, or Russell Wilson, like these guys that can throw and deliver, like they, their outcome is amazing and they can do it in a million different ways. You know, they can drop down arm slot. They can, they can run left, throw back, right. They can do almost anything. And it's like, they're like, well, I kind of credit it back to my baseball days and playing in the middle infield and like being able to turn above the play and like throw across the body and all this sort of stuff. And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you know, I bet you if I put these guys on a table that I would see that they have access to like, you know, both sides of the coin in terms of their joint representations. You know, they can IR, they can ER, they can flex, they can extend, they can abduct, they can adduct. And when the time is right, they can choose the right expression to unfold to fit the task that they're trying to accomplish. Now, I, I want to bring this back to like the, the central premise here, which was kind of like, you know, this morphological change of the skeletal and, and how that can impact people and how training can do that. So when, when you think about like a bench press or a deadlift or, or things like that, that are, you know, a bench press, you're, you're creating this incredible compression. Uh, if we talk about that propulsion arc concept, it's like your arms are right in the middle of this arc, which is the peak of compression. You're IR'd, your hands are pronated, you know, you, you have to do all this stuff. And like, it's not just compressing your arms, it's compressing your thorax. Mm. And it compresses the front of your thorax to, to squeeze the front of the thorax back towards sternum towards spine. And on the back side of your body, you're compressing all those mid-back muscles as well. So kind of like scapula and spine towards sternum. So I'm, I'm literally taking your sternum on one side, your spine and your scapula on the other, and I'm just squeezing it all towards the middle. And if I were to do that, like if I squeeze everything towards the, the, the matter has to go somewhere, I'll expand you laterally, you know, almost like your rib cage pushing laterally outwards and moving the scapula outwards and having the scapula and the glenoid push into the humerus outwards. And it's almost like you, you can picture it like uh, if someone were to kick you in the chest, boom, it would compress your sternum back and it would orient your scapula internally so that now you have these, these internally oriented humerus. If someone were to kick you in the back between your shoulder blades, it would, it would compress your mid spine, which would externally rotate your, your humerus. But what if I did both at the same time and I just laterally expanded this rib cage space? Well, it would give you imaginary lat syndrome is, is what it does. It, um, it creates an expansion co compensation, quite honestly, like a lateral expansion compensation 
that would give you a humorous expansion compensation of now you're just kind of abnormally stuck in humoral abduction. And the more that I've pushed you into some compensatory version of one of these strategies, the more that I'm going to take total degrees of freedom away from your arms and your legs moving. And the more that I take away these degrees of freedom of your arms and your legs moving, it's going to correspond with your rib cage not being able to rotate as much fully, your pelvis not being able to rotate as much fully. You know, when I think about this, like a deadlift, for instance, a deadlift is almost like a lower body bench press. Like I'm going to compress the hell out of the posterior side of your pelvis with like glute max just squeezing inwards and all these other muscles that we don't really think of that much, but like obturator internus on the front side of your pelvis squeezing and like pulling the pubic symphysis back and like this pressure cooker inside your pelvis that's just going to create the same lateral expansion compensation at the level of the pelvis and literally push your femurs away from your body but like if you can picture like the way i picture this this whole thing working it's like i want a rounded rib cage because a rounded rib cage will roll like a ball through space you know, it's, it's and a rounded pelvis will roll like a ball through space. And the more that I make the pelvis and the rib cage compressed anterior and posterior towards midline from, from that front back perspective, and the more that I push it laterally from a medial lateral perspective, now it's, it's almost like I took a ball and I turned it into the shape of like a pill capsule. Mm. And that's not something that turns very well through space. It'd be like if I took a rocking horse and I took the arc out of the bottom and I made it flat. And now it's like, if I wanted to rock, it would like kind of be really jerky and, and not smooth in the way that it rolls through space. So I picture almost like the rib cage and the pelvis is like these things. They're like rolling rocking horses through space. And I want that curve to be beautiful so that it rolls and it's not this flattened out board that like is like jerky and kind of like halting in the way that it moves back and forth through space. And it's hard to uncoach that once you've created that morphological change. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of exercises. There are exercises that can create this lateral compression that would expand you anterior to posterior. But on the flip side, it's almost like if you, if you, get an athlete like me that looks like me that's like short squat wide and you feed them a ton of these exercises that are going to compress a to p and expand medio to lateral you're going to make me run like a two by four that's jerking and halting through space if i get an athlete that's like six five one seventy five and like their their axial skeleton looks like the cardboard inside of a paper towel roll okay that might be someone that is that's naturally expanded more a to p and by compressing them more a to p i might give them a lot of benefit you know like i might create a, the right shape hmm. for them to be able to take advantage of to be able to maximize propulsion and turning because they might turn in a different manner or you know they might take away their ability to turn the, a ball is the best shape to turn. Yeah. If I squeeze the ball in one direction or the other, I'm, it's no longer a ball. Okay. Yeah. 
and I want to squeeze it back the other ways to turn it back into a ball. That's, so yeah, lifting weights for at. one might be great. Lifting weights for another, not so great. Interesting. Can I stop you there? Because I, I, a lot of good information. I just want to summarize real quick to make sure I'm wrapping my head around yeah. this. I think the ball thing is really helpful just to like, like this is kind of the, and I like what you said with what Bill said, like, and I like the term as above, so below, like with the universe or our cells or everything self-replicating, like looking at different small parts of our physiology, preceding parts of, of our existence versus now. I, I really like that idea. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is, so using the idea of a, a ball that has the greatest movement options, like the ball, that's why we play sports with the ball, probably. Well, football is different, but that's why we don't kick it around the football around. We throw it and run with it. So, because uh, that's, that helps. That's like a simple thing that my mind can latch onto. And I think if I take that nice ball, like, so when I was, um, I, I mean, I started lifting weights from, I was like 11 or 12. I've been obsessed, but I, for some reason, squatting just didn't, well, no one taught me. I just grabbed weights and started screwing around. So I just did what felt good. And I, squatting never necessarily felt good just the way I did it. I mean, because no one, what, if someone taught me to sit back and all stuff, I'm like, oh, this is manageable. Okay. But it's a good thing I actually didn't do that because I think it would have ruined my elastic nature. And I, I, I did squat like 16, 17, 18. I was doing a little bit more, but there was a video of a dunk contest of me when I was 18. And I was, I was watching it was like 25 and I was like, man, I was running like on the balls of my feet almost like, like super, I guess, is that expanded? I think through the lower leg, but but the way I got off the ground, like a golf ball almost bouncing off the ground to to get up and just doing this nasty reverse dunk, hands behind the, behind the head. And then I was watching a video of myself in a dunk contest age 22, having done put work in the squat rack, lots of work in the squat rack. And I was just way flatter on my feet. And I didn't have that quite like same. And this is reducing it a lot. I this down to the level of the feet. But that's something I think of. And then, so essentially what you're saying is that, I mean, I'm sure it could be a lot of things, what's happening, the pelvis, et cetera, et cetera. But I was basically creating a more compressive state through all that extra barbell lifting. And whereas the ball of the foot oriented is more of an expansive state. Would that be correct or am I oversimplifying? Yeah, so it's such an interesting uh, topic to get into. So, you know, I just think of like the directions and vectors of how you shoot yourself through space and the way that you orient the body. And, and this kind of gets, I, I usually go with this as the conversation between differentiating the squat and the deadlift, mm. but I think it works perfectly for this as well. And it's like, you know, when I talk about the squat versus, versus deadlift, the deadlift to me is sitting the pelvis backwards in space, posterior displacement of the pelvis to the greatest degree I possibly can. That's a hinge and vertical displacement of the pelvis to the greatest degree that I possibly can is the squat. Mm. Okay. And when I'm evaluating your ability to do one or the other, in my mind, I'm thinking about it from what is happening at the pelvic floor. Okay. And the pelvic floor is going to be divided in, from the posterior pelvic floor and the anterior pelvic floor. And I want to be able to, this is going to speak to like lengthened orientation and shortened orientation of those two things which in Bill's words is eccentric orientation versus concentric orientation. When I have a muscle in a shortened state, it's in a concentric orientation. And when a muscle is in a lengthened state, it's in an eccentric orientation. If you are yielding and you want to move through a large range of motion or, or where you will displace in a yielding manner, will be dictated by which tissue is in an eccentric orientation. Mm. So the only way that I'll be able to hinge and sit back 
is if I allow the posterior pelvic floor to reach an eccentric orientation, okay? And the only way I'm going to be able to squat is if I allow the anterior pelvic floor to reach an eccentric orientation. The anterior pelvic floor being eccentric will allow for yielding displacement to go in that direction. And, and so that's like step one, okay? Step two is if I want to purely hinge and not squat down at the same time, I need to reach an eccentric orientation of the posterior pelvic floor to allow movement in that direction. And I need to reach a concentric orientation of the anterior pelvic floor hmm. to block yielding going in that direction. Once I've done that, now the only motion that will take place will be this posterior horizontal direction. If I want to squat straight up and down and I don't want my hips to sit back, I need to reach a concentric orientation of the posterior pelvic floor and an eccentric orientation of the anterior pelvic floor. That makes sense. The concentric posterior pelvic floor will block posterior displacement, and so it'll be purely vertical. Okay, so I think that's like step one of wrapping your mind around the puzzle that we're working with. So now it's the question is, if I want to jump up, okay, what sort of orientations do I need to take place here? I want, in my mind, what I want to do to get elastic is I want to have a concentric orientation of the anterior pelvic floor. I want a concentric orientation of the posterior pelvic floor. And I want to make the anterior yield and not give up its concentric orientation. All right. If I can do that, it's almost like creating a Super Bowl. It's like I try to make this thing yield, it won't, and then it rebounds. Uh, it's easier to see it at the ankle, okay, which okay. is why I coach almost everything at the ankle because I believe what is happening at the ankle will tell me what's happening at the posterior, at the pelvic floor. Interesting. In a lot of ways. Cool. So, you know, when someone's trying to do elastic jumping or when they're sprinting, like what does the research tell me about sprinting? It tells me that fast people have less flexion at the ankle, knee, and hip on ground contact, you know, and slower people will have, and this is just top speed from what I understand. If you're just looking at purely top speed flying things, less flexion, ankle, knee, and hip during the ground contact phase. Uh, so they're not crumpling as much and like running like a jack in the box. It's just like they hit the ground, they're off the ground. So what they're doing is they're, they're holding onto plantar flexion during the yielding phase, which the yielding would be increasing the degree to which you're going into dorsiflexion. Mm -hmm. But if you can maintain a concentric orientation of the gastroc and soleus, then those muscles don't deform as much during the yield. If the muscle doesn't deform as much, then something else has to deform, which would be the Achilles. You know, just this relative stiffness concept. So to me, like what I want is, is for elastic activities to hold onto the concentric orientation of the relevant muscles during the yielding phase to the greatest degree I can so that the deformation takes place at the tendinous tissue, which has a much greater elastic return mm -hmm. And I would think the same thing would be happening at the pelvic floor. Okay, so I want those pelvic floor muscles to maintain a concentric orientation because 
there's still stuff that's going to be moving downwards upon every impact. You know, gravity is going to pull down the guts and it's going to pull down the fluids that are inside the chamber of the abdomen and the pelvis. And that fluid is hitting the pelvic floor. And if that fluid pushes the pelvic floor down, it's going to push the pelvic floor into a more of a, an eccentric orientation. I don't want it to do that. I want it to hold on to that concentric orientation so that the fluid just bounces back up on every ground contact. You know, and it's like if the muscles hold concentric orientation, the back and forth displacement vertically is going to be coming from elastic sources as opposed to frictional muscular sources. And for jumping and for running and for those kind of elastic tasks, the more that I can make the muscle stay the same length while other tissues deform and reform, the more elastic I'm making the task. But now I kind of feel as though this, this conversation regarding the orientation of the muscle, it, it gets under the hood and mechanistically explains this concept of stiffness or whatever the hell you want to call it. Like it, it, something's got to bend, you know, and the more force that I hit with, the more something will bend. It's just making the right thing bend for the right task. So when I think of strength training and muscular development, I'm trying to make the muscle bend and I'm trying to get the muscle to change its orientation, to eccentric to concentric, eccentric to concentric. When I'm thinking about elastic athletic movements, I want the muscle to stay the same. And I want all the other tissues to be the things that bend. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just the, like I'm thinking the bones, everything is the stuff that bends. And that's where, you know, what I was saying, like when you were talking about collisions, I, that word collision to me just has my, my mind kind of going in, in some really interesting ways, because how are you managing the collision? You know, are like, there's parts of the car that you want to bend during a collision and are there other parts of the car that you don't want to mm -hmm. bend? Like you don't want, like that's why they build roll cages for race cars. Like you want the front end to crumple. You want other things to, to crumple or explode off. And you want that, that main part of the chassis to stay the same. And the cool thing about human anatomy is that I can electrochemically alter which part I make my roll cage. You know, and uh, and in many ways, like during at least I can picture it during these athletic movements for elasticity, my muscular system needs to be this reinforced roll cage so that everything else crumples. Hmm. I like that. I want to go back to oh, you were talking about the running and and with the, the stiffness and concentric orientation, because that made sense to me from um, a Darian Barr in some one of the uh, running webinars we had done was talking about how Usain Bolt better than I mean he does a lot of things better than and we study the freaks better than everyone else he can get his foot uh, Darian calls it class one to class two faster meaning his foot Bolt's foot or ankle changes from class one to class two basically he gets the ball of his foot faster for lack of a better word as his as his he passes over um, his foot passes under his center of mass that knee bends and yields but his foot and ankle maintain that concentric orientation almost better i mean you could reduce it to muscle there's a lot of the joint nuances too and you know domes and shapes there but but he does that really really well so that foot almost retains that 
uh, that shape and stiffness. And it's just, it's so cool to see the calf and gastroc activation, some of those good sprinters, because we take that for granted. And mm-hmm. ironically, Bolt doesn't like squatting, like he, like he doesn't, the guy doesn't like squatting, probably shouldn't. Um, but just, it's really interesting um, for, for you to say that, me to, me to think about that. And so I like what you said about the pelvis and the ankle being on the same thing, because that was the thing that I was thinking that changed for me over time is yes, I slowly was becoming a better squatter over the years from age, let's just say 18 to 22. But I noticed my ankles were starting to give more. And I imagine that would be because I was letting my pelvic bolt, my, my pelvic anterior pelvis yield and be more uh, eccentric and, and drop more. <laughs> It'd be nice. I'm not having video, but I'm like, I have like this bowl and like the guts are dropping into it. But if the ankles and the guts are on the same page, then that makes sense why I adopted a little bit different strategy there. And so it's interesting. I shoot. I had something else I was going to say in there, but I. I oh, oh, when I was in high school, I squat. Well, last thing, and then I'll let you go. Is that when I was in high school, I did squat like age of sixteen, eighteen, but no one was coaching me, and I had like a very knees in oriented squat. Like I just, I remember like just hitting this really big knees in. Like if I was going heavy, that would be it. And I almost wonder if that prevents the, like, it, like not even the transition on the way up, just straight up knees are just going in. And I and and I would never hurt my knees. My knees actually got better doing that my senior year. Like I eliminated my Achilles issues. And I almost wonder if just the knees in just period just kind of prevents the anterior pelvis from dropping. And that's one hundred percent. That's exactly what it does. Because it's like you know you could say that the deadlift is the compressive exercise for the lower body, and the squat is the expansion exercise for the lower body. If you're really like squatting the squat mm-hmm. and hinging the deadlift. You know, and so anyways, like internal rotation adduction are compressive strategies. And like you could very, very well say that what is happening at the femur is what is happening at the pelvic floor, you know. And if you are hitting internal rotation and adduction, you're going to be driving this the concept that would keep the anterior pelvic floor in a concentric orientation, you know. Mm. So what I'm thinking is that, you know, with, with this book that I wrote and with taking Bill's concepts and trying to try to organize it in, I think that's my skill. I just organize things pretty well and, and create like a big picture presentation of how this stuff fits into a puzzle. Like to me, like it's just step one is like, I just took a lot of information and I gave the whole playbook of options, but that doesn't tell you how to play the game yet. You know what I mean? It's like, it's just step one of like, Here's all the plays in the history of the NFL. It's in one playbook, but that's a terrible game strategy. You know, like it doesn't tell you how to, how to play against, you know, different kinds of defenses. It just literally gives you all the options. Now, step two is now that we understand how all these things fit together or, or now that we see the full backdrop, what do I need to pull from the backdrop for these specific cases? You know, but to me, it's like I, I can picture your vertical jump, what you're talking about in a dunk contest at a younger age, where it sounds like you probably maintained a really concentric posterior pelvic floor so your hips didn't sit too far back, mm-hmm. okay? You probably had your hips go straight up and straight down like in an elevator shaft, and you probably kept your, your gastroc soleus in a concentric orientation even while it was yielding. So it's like you, you just had like probably anterior pelvic floor and posterior pelvic floor concentric, gastroc concentric, and it's just like bang, and it just shoots vertically. Like everything's going to shoot vertically. All the forces are yielding vertically, 
and then they overcome in a vertical manner and it just sends you that way versus learning to create an eccentric orientation somewhere so that now it, it's like when and when that eccentric orientation of those tissues happens you now have to use a muscular strategy to for your overcoming action now here's the thing like i want people to be able to have access to muscular strategies elastic strategies mm -hmm. i want you to be able to show me you can go eccentric and constant but can you do the right thing at the right time for the task that we're trying to accomplish and learning how to do that i think is really important so that's kind of like where i picture the end thing going but it's almost like if you adopt an inappropriate strategy for a task and you've learned that and that's the only thing you're going with now i could see that backfiring so you know i, I had somebody ask me this great question recently about like okay so i can they, they're like i've read this information i kind of get it i see the big picture you're talking about these orientations and these these kind of these patterns of neurological learning like, but, and, and it's like good to have variability, but like, what if I'm working with like a right-handed pitcher and they turn unbelievably to the left and they've learned how to compress their right side in a, in a really remarkable degree, should I teach them how to compress their left side? Or is that gonna sort of screw them up? Should I teach them how to expand their right side? Like, or is that gonna take them out of their pattern? And I was like, well, let, let me tell you something. Like, if they're about to play in game seven of a series and they're the starting pitcher, don't mess with them. Mm -hmm. Like, you're out of your mind. But, like, if you're way in the off season, now it's a chance to, like, teach them some new things and, like, get their body to understand it. But you better be able to reorganize them for the tasks that they need to be able to do at the right time. You know, so it kind of becomes and, – and also, like, I don't know. <laughs> like, that's the other thing. Like this, this information is theoretical. I think it's correct. You know what I mean? I, I, I don't think it's incorrect. I think it's a great model that captures a truer essence of what actually moves human bodies through space. But nobody knows what to do with it yet. You know, it's almost like, uh, you know, I could picture it being like, well, I can picture it with my cell phone. Like I had a flip phone right up until like 2000 and like, 16 or something like that and then i got a, an iphone and i didn't know how to operate it you know i literally couldn't figure out how to use it that day because it was just so it was but then i figured out how to use it and it was like oh my god this is so much better <laughs> like what was i doing with that other thing but you know at first it was a disaster it was like a complete disaster like i had no idea how to operate this thing and so I had to figure it out. I had to play around with it and learn how the thing worked. And I think it's the same thing with this. It's like, I think that this model is a better explanation than, than previous things. But it doesn't mean we know how to use it yet. And mm -hmm. it's just going to require playing around and like figuring it out and seeing like, but I do think that like once you understand these, these eccentric concentric orientations, yeah. when, when you think about like a, concentric orientation and trying to yield something in it and like like it's great for rebound and elasticity but does that mean we don't squat like who do we do this for who do we not do this for but like i said it's it's like we're going from flip phones to like iphone 5 or something like that in one step and that drastic of a jump can lead to some user errors mm -hmm. but you know just be 
be a better consumer, better user of a product, you figure it out. Yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. Like just going from force weight on the bar to like more advanced scores and particularly then hydraulics, pelvic hydraulics, that's a big step. And so I like how to keep it simple, like thinking of the ball, right? You just, that to me, that's a, at least somewhat of a simple way of the ball. And then, I mean, what you were saying with the pelvic floor totally made sense to me. I mean, having mulled over this for enough time, but it's, it's, it's really awesome stuff. And I was even thinking when I was 21, that's when I high jumped my personal best, which is sad. I never got better, but I think I never got better because I was just living in those, those eccentric pelvic and ankles. It's just a little too much. I mean, I got close, but it just didn't have that quite pop that made me what I was for so long. Anyways, I remember my parents saying this when I was 21, I jumped my high jump PR seven feet. They're like, man, you really walked on your cat, your balls, your feet a lot that year. You're really like, and it was still subconscious. I wasn't even thinking about it. Just like my physiology wanted my calves to be more concentric that year. Like calves are on concentric, get to that ball of the foot faster and more elastically and get off the ground quicker. And I've heard that with like high jump coaches just saying that walking the balls of your feet, it just seems so simple. That's stupid. That's like a hack. That's dumb. It's like there's something that concentric orientation of the calf. So I know we don't have a lot of time left and I, and I hate these like, and this actually question is kind of like perhaps a little bit ignorant in the sense that it is a huge upgrade, but like you were saying, it's hard to get people out of once someone's been compressed, once I've you know done all that heavy bench yeah. or the heavy squats and I've, I've altered the state of my thorax and my like pressure cavities almost, what are at least some guidelines yeah. to saying, Hey, let's, and I know you said different people respond to different things, right? Too, like the, the paper towel person and whatever, but let's say it's the person who was good. They got compressed by doing too much. What are just some basic ideas to say, Hey, let's get you in the right direction of getting back to being elastic well, and robust. You know, I do believe in table tests, you know, measure arms and legs, but I measure arms and legs like can it IR, can it ER, can it horizontally mm-hmm. adduct and abduct. I'm using those things to gain a window into viewing what I think is happening at the thorax and the pelvis. The legs tell me about the pelvis, the arms tell me about the thorax, and they tell me about the shape of those structures. And then let's say I do feel as though I've, I'm, I'm working. And, and again, like the infrasternal angle is a big talk. Like if, you know, generally speaking, like if the angle is, is obtuse and like significantly more than 100 degrees, like I've got a very obtuse infrasternal angle. It's like 160 degrees, 170 degrees on a lot of days. That is your indicator. Is this person biased strongly towards this expansion orientation or compression orientation? A wide, obtuse infrasternal angle is someone that's biased towards compression systematically, and someone with a very narrow infrasternal angle is someone that's biased towards expansion. Hmm. So, because look, like it could be me as someone strongly biased towards compression and somebody else strongly biased towards expansion. And we could have the same arms and legs table test, and, and that could fool some somebody into thinking that somebody needs one, that, that we would both need the same thing. And we might need very different things. So that's always your, your test for determining the bias towards an archetype that someone would be going towards. But let's say it is someone with this wide infrasternal angle, and they've probably created this A to P compression and really push themselves laterally, you know, number one, I want to, I want to see that their arms and legs table tests stay in a, in a window that seems to work for them, you know, like, and not everybody needs perfect range of motion in all their joints. It just needs to be good enough and in a window. And if I do a lot of compressive training, 
and I move you out of that window, it's probably a really good indicator I've gone too far in that direction. Hmm. But let's say I want a quick fix to be able to get you out of there. You know, I, I, I just think about like gravity and like forces and, and, and dictating stuff. Like it could be as simple as saying like no planks or supine or prone exercises for this A to P compressed person. Everything is side lying. Everything is like hmm. on one side versus the other. You know, I've done a number of times just laying people down on their sides and stacking sandbags and weights on their hips and on their ribs and dramatically changing table tests. And, and for me, it actually makes me somewhere between half an inch and an inch taller but pre and post. Like if I just measure myself huh. on the wall, it's it's pretty crazy. Like the, other the people side plank with a bunch of weights on you, like something as simple as that. Crazy. Literally just, yep. I just put, I lay on my side. I put, you know, hundred pounds of sandbags on my ribs, hundred pounds of sandbags on my hips. It's like, I'll lay there for 10 to 15 minutes. Or just lay, oh, I lay, lay there. there and, yeah. Not even I plank, just, just lay there. Just bro, lay there. That's awesome. Yep. And it'll change my internal rotation for my femurs by like 25, 30 degrees. It makes me taller when I measure my height. It allows me to squat better. It's just like, it's so easy and simple <laughs> that it's kind of crazy. You know, so it's just like if you can visually just think about what direction someone has changed shape in that's preventing. Like, I want people to be shape changers. You know, I want you to be able to morph into as many shapes as you possibly can and then to use the right shape at the right time for the task you've got, which I love watching the videos you break down people like toggling wrists in and things like that. Because they're, they're modifying themselves on the fly to be able to hit a long jump appropriately. And they're using that as like a boat rudder almost to like move themselves and adjust in like a feedback mechanistic perspective to time it right. You know, and it's like, that's beautiful the way that like, you know, if they, you know, I always think of it like this is plantar flexion and this is dorsiflexion. And if I need to feed my system a little more expansion, to be able to turn that way just enough at the right time mm. to be able to, you know, that's what I need to do. And this is a great little expansion strategy. I just plantar flex my, my wrist, my forelimbs, and boom, I turn that way just a little bit by doing that task. And now I can use that to create the right launch position. You know, it's like the brain solves that out. But if I lose the ability to do that on that side, now I can't modify this activity uh, at the right time and place to, to execute and get what I need out of it. And it's like I've, I've lost access to that. And that's a shame. So it's, it's I, I'll tell you, like, I get more out of watching the videos you post than just about anything else at this point, because it's real, it's happening in live time, it's slowed down. You're explaining it from your perspective, which is different language a little bit. And like, and I'm like really able to put a lot of things together. And it's these natural problem solving things that the organism is, is figuring out. And it, like I said, I think Bill's right. I think there are only two strategies. Okay. And it's the manifestations of how these strategies come out based upon just the configuration of the skeleton. Cause it's locked. Like I can't, I can't three-dimensionally expand my wrist. Like there's bones <laughs> in the way, you know, but it, it's so cool. And like, it just endlessly fascinates me. 
Yeah, it's it, hey, same to me as well. I just, I love, and the more I learn about it too, especially just even what I've learned from talking to you today, I watch those videos and they're just, it's just, it's a miracle. It's amazing to watch these athletes do these things. There's so much information going on, so much time. It's so, and the more you open your mind and just get these layers, it's just so cool to see, even what you're just saying, the wrist going facing down or up, ex, or compression expansion, what are you feeding the system? Like, Holy shit, man. Like the body is so freaking cool. I could sit here and watch these videos for hours, right? So I, I appreciate that you've gotten a lot out of them. I love putting it together and I'll have more to fuel my, my journey too with the knowledge I've gained from you today. So I appreciate it, man. I know we were out of time here, but I know you're, you got a book coming out. So please tell us about that. I've read a little bit of it. It's amazing. So um, go ahead and uh, share yeah. that real quick. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's based on this Rethinking the Big Pattern series of, of education stuff I've been doing for the last few years. You know, the book is going to be an ebook that'll be through Renaissance Periodization. You know, we don't even have like the actual, the Rethinking the Big Pattern is going to be like the subtitle. The editor wasn't crazy about it from a marketing standpoint as far as like catching titles. And I'm finally, hey, name it whatever you're going to name it. But, um, you know, the I feel like the book at least has all the concepts wrapped in there. It's 19 chapters. It starts off with the model and the theory in the beginning. And then it goes into all the training patterns towards the end. And then it, it kind of gives like some, some sample, like here's how I would use it for, if I'm training an elite level tennis player. Here's how I would use it if I'm training a college front seven freshman. And so I'm excited about it. This whole project for the book has been two years in the making now. So it should be done hopefully by the end of November and hopefully people are able to purchase it then. And look, like I'm just, it's like, it's like my baby coming out to the world or something mm-hmm. like that. I'm, I, it's, it's, uh, I'm nervous about it, like how it's perceived and that whole thing. But I really do think it's a useful product that, that hopefully can change a lot of minds regarding how they view movement and how they view training. So you know, I'm, I'm excited about it. I teach seminars. I've got a, a big virtual seminar I'm going to try to do November 21st and 22nd for this. I'm going to be doing that at Hype Gym. It'll be available for like a 10-day window. But people can find information on that through my Instagram. The, the bio link will take you to, to where you can get more info on that. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I'm working hard. I'm trying to get this concept out there. I'm trying to teach these ideas and and practices more and more. And I try to live it. I try to really explore it in my own training and the the training that I do with other people. So this, it's my life, man. Yeah. I love it. Hey, well, thank you so much, Pat. I learned a ton from you and it's always good talking. Yeah. Likewise, Joel, I really appreciate it. That wraps up another episode. Thank you guys for tuning in. I really appreciate you as the listeners. If you enjoy the show, you can help us out by leaving us a rating, a review on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever you're listening to. Also, before we take off, I wanted to give a last shout out to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. They've been a longtime supporter of the show, and we can't thank them enough for their sponsorship. So be sure to check out their blog and online store. Head over to simplyfaster.com for that. All right, I'm taking off. We'll see you guys next week.